This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Photographer gets stunning shot of ISS, volcano erupts, Tony Vaccaro dies at 100 years old, and more. All of this in this week's episode of the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 305. So let's head on over to Petapixel and see what we got for this week. Photographer captures stunning shot of ISS crossing Moon's crater. Talented backyard astrophotographer Andrew McCarthy has captured an incredible photo of the International Space Station passing in front of one of the moon's brightest craters. McCarthy says the photo is one of the, quote, most meticulously planned shots of his career, which has seen no shortage of carefully planned images that have captured the world's imagination. Quote, this shot was my redemption, McCarthy tells Petapixel. A few weeks ago, there was a similar transit forecasted, but after setting up on location, getting all my equipment configured and focused, my laptop quit on me about 30 seconds before the pass, and I missed it. I'm so thrilled this one worked out, as these are a lot of work, and missing two back-to-backs would have been heartbreaking. The photo shows the silhouette of the ISS in the foreground in front of the Tycho crater in the background. Tycho is a large, well-preserved impact crater on the moon located in the southern lunar highlands. It is both one of the youngest and one of the most noticeable impact craters on the lunar surface. Named after the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who studied the moon and other celestial objects in the late 16th century, the crater is about 53.4 miles or 85 kilometers in diameter and has a depth of about 2.98 miles or 4.8 kilometers. Quote, that the crater is 53 miles wide, so while the station almost looks like it's orbiting the moon, it's actually 1,000 times closer to us, McCarthy writes. McCarthy had to capture the moment the IAS whizzed by at its orbit speed of 5 miles per second. Here's what the moment of the transit looked like in real time on McCarthy's laptop, which was hooked up to his camera on a telescope. And you can watch this video on his YouTube, uh, or Twitter, I'm sorry, and there is a link to the video in this article in the show notes. I knew it was coming, but still audibly gasped when I saw it, McCarthy writes. The photo was captured from a remote section of Highway 79 in Arizona's Sonoran Desert. McCarthy calculated the transit viewing location using transitfinder.com, headed out to the spot late at night, and then set up his 14-inch telescope with a focal length of 4,000 millimeters to achieve an incredible amount of detail when the transit occurred at 11 p.m. Quote, these shots require meticulous planning because you have to be positioned exactly right or the station won't pass exactly where you think it will, McCarthy writes. If I had set up my telescope on the other side of the clearing I was in, I would have missed it completely. It can be difficult to find a perfect transit, transit with the ISS passing right across the moon, as most of the results will be near or far misses. McCarthy then shows up way before the scheduled transit, at least one hour, but sometimes several for the event that is over in the blink of an eye. The ISS is only in front of the moon for one-tenth of a second. 
Thankfully for McCarthy, his meticulous planning paid off, and he managed to capture one of his most impressive astrophotos yet. McCarthy has published a detailed blog post sharing the technical details that went into this photo. You can purchase limited edition prints of A Visit to Tycho on the same page. And it's incredible. His shot is absolutely amazing. And my hat's off to him for being so meticulous with his planning to capture an image that of something that only occurs in the span of one-tenth of a second. That is incredible. Photos reveal new eruption of Hawaii's Kilu. Kilu Volcano. Hawaii's Kilu Volcano, which erupted for 16 months beginning in September 2021, is erupting once again. New photos released by the United States Geological Survey Hawaiian Volcano Observatory show. The USGS Hawaii Volcano Observatory moved the alert level for Kilu up from orange to red Friday morning as the organization examines the eruption and any associated hazards. That said, the summit lies within Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and not immediately close to residential areas, meaning there is no indication that the eruption will move out of the summit area at this time. Kilu is quite close to another volcano, Mauna Loa. However, the release from the USGS says that that volcano has not been affected by the neighboring eruption. Mona Loa Trail and Backcountry are close from the top of Mona Loa Road because of the eruption, though according to the National Park Service, Mona Loa remains on a yellow alert level. For two weeks in November and December 2022, both volcanoes were active at the same time. They stopped around the same time as well. While that did not get close enough to residential areas to pose a threat, it did reach within 1.7 miles of a nearby highway, according to the USGS. And in 2018, Kilu, which is particularly active, destroyed more than 700 residences, NPR reported. The concern, the USGS notes, lies not with the lava spewing that that thoughts of an eruption might concur, but rather with the volcanic gas emissions. The volcanic gas, made up largely of water vapor, carbon dioxide, and sulfur dioxide, is released continuously throughout the eruption, according to the USGS. These gases can move downwind. As SO2, or sulfur dioxide, is released from the summit, it will react in the atmosphere to create the visible haze known as VOG, volcanic smog, that has been observed downwind of Kilu, the USGS said. VOG creates the potential for airborne health hazards to residents and visitors, damages agricultural crops and other plants, and affects livestock. The organization added that effects like Pele's air, which are thin glass fibers that can be carried on the wind and similar airborne volcanic projectile, are particles, excuse me, these can cause eye and skin irritation. Those living near the area or planning to visit should check the USGS website for continuing information on any possible hazards or changes to the situation. And there are some posts with video and images on the Hawaii Volcanoes NPS uh, official Twitter feed. And you can find these in this article in today's show notes and check them out for yourself. Sony Starsphere will let you take photos from an orbiting satellite. Sony describes its Starsphere project as a way to open space perspectives that have been previously limited to just astronauts and provide it to anyone on Earth via remote-controlled orbiting camera satellites. 
The company says the Star Sphere is unique because it doesn't just provide photos of space that can be viewed at home. It actually allows anyone to operate a nano satellite and take pictures from it that can be used for anything as if the person actually took the photos themselves in space. Quote, you can shoot your own space photography and videography with exclusive camera work, including never-before-possible angles of view, the company says, regarding its space photography service. In addition, you can get a sense of life-changing space perspectives through the experiences, experience of connecting with space. Sony is partnering with the University of Tokyo and JAXA to develop and operate satellite, the satellite and ground systems, as well as commercialize the Space Inspiration Project, the company says. And there are some accompanying YouTube videos that you can watch in this article in the show notes. Starsphere's nanosatellite will orbit Earth and provide a way for anyone to capture photos along its trajectory via what Sony describes as a shooting simulator, which operates a satellite with simple controls which, while also providing the user with live views of what it's seeing. Orbiting between 500 and 600 kilometers, or about 310 to 772 miles above Earth, the nanosatellite features a Sony full-frame camera, the specific model is undisclosed, and a 28 to 135mm f4 lens. Users will be able to control that camera remotely with what Sony describes as a high degree of flexibility, including the ability to change ISO, aperture, and shutter speed at their discretion. The satellite will offer the ability to select from 16 possible orbits. Each orbit around Earth completes in about 90 minutes. Quote, when the satellite passes over a ground antenna, users will be able to operate it directly for around five to eight minutes while checking live images from the actual onboard camera, allowing them to experience a real-time connection with space, Sony explains. Quote, the shooting simulator will enable intuitive execution of tasks such as operating the space camera, setting, setting up shooting sequence, and reserving shooting sessions, making it easy to plan shots of the Earth star-filled skies, and other diverse subjects. In addition to offering the ability to directly control the satellite for short periods of time, Sony is also planning to work with artists and give them the opportunity to, as the company says, create new art based on space perspectives. The art from space perspectives is not limited to creating works such as photographs, videos, movies, and media art from images and footage taken by the space camera, Sony says. Quote, we will work on various creative activities with many people, including artists and creators, by offering new inspiration from experiences connecting with space through operation of our satellite and content that brings users various forms of space perspectives. The cost to access time with the Starsphere satellite remains one of the biggest questions of Sony's newly announced service, and the company hasn't provided any details on that end yet. The company plans to start the service sometime this year, available only in the United States and Japan, and those interested can register to join the crew on the Starsphere website. And you can find that link at the bottom of this article in today's show notes. Tony Vaccaro, renowned World War II and fashion photographer, dies at 100 years old. Renowned American photographer Tony Vaccaro has died. His diverse career spanned many decades and focused on everything from World War II in Europe to fashion and lifestyle in the United States. He was 100 years old. Vaccaro passed away at his home in Long Island City on December 28, 2022, just eight days after turning 100 due to complications resulting from an ulcer surgery that was performed in November. 
Quote, with a heavy heart, we like we would like to inform you of the passing of Tony Vaccaro last night, his family wrote in an Instagram post published on December 29th. At his home with his family by his side. Tony wanted to reach 100 more than anything, and he did. After his big birthday, he told us, now I can rest. Tony loved people more than anything and saw the best in everyone. He would wake up in the morning saying, what a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. Vaccaro was born in Miscellantano Celestino Onfrorio de Caro uh, in December 20th, 1922 in Greensburg, Pennsylvania to immigrant Italian parents. In 1943, Vaccaro joined the United States Army serving Europe during World War II. Although he had initially tried to join the Army Signal Corps as a combat photographer, showing his high school photography to be ex- to be accepted, the 21-year-old was deemed too young and inexperienced. He instead became a private in the 83rd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army, seeing combat in France, Germany, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Assigned to be a scout, Vaccaro was still able to utilize his skill with a camera and document his unique perspective of the World War. He would go on to shoot over 10,000 photos during and after the war, while in Europe, he captured poignant and powerful images that would go on to become some of the most enduring images of the war. Although he often shot a camera instead of a gun, Vaccaro still bled for the cause of the Allies. He was shot and received a Purple Heart from the Army for being wounded during combat. After the war, Vaccaro continued to work as a photographer, capturing images of everyday life, celebrities, and major events. He would work extensively for major American magazines, such as Time, to document the fashion and lifestyle of Americans. Celebrities, leaders, and titans were often the subject of Vaccaro's photos, and the photographer captured portraits of everyone from artist Pablo Picasso to United States President John F. Kennedy. And he does have some amazing images that are shared here in this story. Vaccaro's work has been published in two books, Entering Germany, Photographs 1944 to 1949, published in 2001, and Shots of War, published in 2002. Vaccaro leaves behind his two sons, two grandchildren, and a daughter-in-law. So it's definitely a sad, sad that Tony Vaccaro has passed away. There is an accompanying YouTube video with him that you can watch. It's in this article in the show notes, and our heart goes out to his friends and family. Definitely a trying time. I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Photographer captures the energetic world of chemical reactions in macro. And there is an accompanying video in this article in the show notes. With a calculated blending of photography, science, and practical effects, photographer Scott Portingale captures and presents dynamic images of macro worlds and chemical reactions all within a square inch of a Petri dish. In Portingale's 
new experimental short film and image series titled Chemical Somnia. Audiences are immersed in a hypnotic and vivacious macro setting that is also paired with music from an unconventional acoustic string synthesizer. In his garage journal laboratory and studio, the self-taught photographer attentively mixes elements to illustrate the dynamic nature of fluids and phase transitions that were expressed in his film and images. Quote, in chemical somnia, my original intention was to explore many more aspects of chemical reactions. It did not take long before I realized the safety issues associated with turning my garage into a lab and opted to keep it safe and manageable to not become the wily e. coyote of the experimental signo cinematographers. A lot can go wrong when you are untrained chemists with a library of chemicals and a half trigger for our hair trigger for experimentation, Portingale says. Treading with caution and determination, Portingale dove into his experimental cinematography despite the failure of past projects. Quote, I never intentionally set out to make experimental films initially. My experimental work has been a result of unrealized narrative aspirations. I developed a documentary on plant intelligence, which also did not get funded past the development phase. But for me, the desire to pursue the imaginary remained and led to a new body of work that includes plant time lapse and macro cinematography on natural subjects, be them biological, chemical, and or physical, he says. I call this new body of work experimental natural, experimental natural history. So, in a sense, my subsequent work has been a regrowth of sorts when larger projects failed to launch. I picked up the pieces from the debris field and make something else from it. To assist in the dramatic shifts, reactions, and overall tone displayed in a short film, Portingale sought out composer Gorkum Sen after discovering him on YouTube. Quote, an algorithm drafted somewhere in Silicon Valley introduced us, he, call, he recalls. There was a timeless feeling to the instrument he invented, the Yebahar, an acoustic musical instrument described as a real-time acoustic string synthesizer. I initially thought it would be perfect to pair with the quantum sequence I'm working on. Imagine riding an atom like a horse. I did, and it sounded like Gorkum playing the Yakubar. When the bright film came along, I did not hesitate to reach out to him about the project. His music really elevated the project. Music and sound design is a very underappreciated aspect of cinema. The Yabhar gives Portingale's macro universe a deeply dramatic and flawless effect, an effect that process that wasn't without its unique challenges. Dust was my biggest challenge. It is everywhere, and when shooting liquids, always end up in a frame. The next time I shoot a project like this, I will create a dust-free environment and wear long sleeves to cover my constantly shedding hairy arms. So many shots were ruined or had to be addressed in post. The audio track behind the raw footage is embarrassingly profane, Portingale explains. Portingale uses a Blackmagic 6K camera and a Nikon D850 for longer duration time-lapse sequences. Quote, what I really liked about the Blackmagic camera was the intervals I could shoot under 24 frames per second, like 4 frames per second and 8 frames per second. Raw imaging is taxing on hard drive storage. Being able to dial in unconventional frame rates was key for this project. I always find myself looking for options and equipment that may have potential to use in a different way than it was than it was intended. Unconventional is a familiar approach for Portingale and his execution and setup. 
with a workspace filled with peculiar objects and simply anything that ignites creativity. Quote, my material library is extensive and I have a hard time throwing away what may have a use in the near future. A part of my brain is always looking out for something that may be of use, and it is a bonus if I find a lot of one thing. I have a box of orange ping pong balls, four spherical plastic beer kegs, and 40 pounds of tiny glass beads that make painted road lines glow at night. If it's colorful or bends light, I just can't help myself, he says. In his work, Portingale hopes viewers can appreciate his effort toward context, frame, light, and timing, while also kindling their curiosities and closer observation of our shared natural world. Quote, my favorite imagery to create was the metal displacement sequences. A replacement reaction occurs when a metal aqueous liquid and a solid metal are paired. In chemical sonoma, I used zinc and an aqueous compound, silver nitrate. This reaction to an unaided eye doesn't look like much, but under a small amount of magnification, a rich, rich textured world emerges. When looking into the monitor, a sense of awe is definitely present, he continues. Events like this are happening all around us all the time beyond the narrow reach of our unaided senses. Feedback about the series after its debut has been more low-key than Portingale has expected, but is currently shifting, which he has been grateful for. Quote, it meant the world to me when a few filmmakers, I have a lot of respect and love of their work, shared it on their Instagram stories, he says. I was fortunate and extremely grateful when Vimeo chose it as part of their staff pick curation and that Petapixel is writing about it. Now, at least the project will get in front of way more people than I can reach alone that may be interested in his work. As for what's next for Portingale, he, he's keeping busy and being a bit secretive. Quote, I carry lots of secrets on the details, but I'm about to release another experimental na uh, natural history film with two more in production and a narrative stop motion project close to post-production. For more from Portingale, make sure to visit his website and Instagram. And it's really cool. I really like this idea. And he has gotten some extremely vivid and wild looking images with his experimentation. So definitely my hat's off to you for being so creative, Scott. And I hope you continue your work. Exclusive photos. Nikon's new Z-mount 85mm f1.2s is a handful. Yesterday, Nikon revealed it was developing a new 85mm f1.2s lens for its Z-mount mirrorless cameras, and Petapixel was able to get some literal hands-on time with the optic, which shows that the new lens is quite the handful. Petapixel's uh, Ted Christanis met up with Nikon at this year's CES show in Las Vegas, where the company showed that the lens is very far along in the development cycle. So far along, in fact, that the company had a pre-production model that he was able, or that they were able to show him. While he wasn't permitted to take any photos with the lens, since it's still a bit too early, Christanis was able to hold the lens to provide a bit of context on how big the optic is. And it is quite large. Uh, 
The multiple angle shows that it features a focus ring, an LFN button, a secondary ring near the base of the lens, presumably for aperture control, as well as a physical auto manual focus switch. The Nikkor Z85 F1.2S also features an 82mm front filter thread, which provides additional context for how large the new optic is beyond the heft of it in hand. Quote, the Nikkor Z85 F1.2S is a fast mid-telephoto prime lens that will become a must-have for those capturing portraits, especially for weddings, events, and fashion, Nikon says. Everything you capture with this lens will look elegant and glamorous. For more information on the Nikon 85mm f1.2s, make sure to check out Petapixel's original coverage of the lens from yesterday, which includes a second in-development lens, the Nikkor Z 26mm f2.8. Nikon has not provided any concrete information on when the lens is set to be officially announced, nor has it uh, said when it expects it to hit store shelves or how much it'll cost when it does. But given that the Nikkor Z85 1.2 is far enough along in its development cycle that the company was comfortable allowing Christanis to hold and photograph it, Nikon's promise of soon may be just around the corner. And that's all the stories I have from Petapixel for this week. And now we'll head on over to the rumor sites to see what they have in store for us. Now, unfortunately, I don't have anything new for my listeners. From Canon Rumors, the new owners seem to be slacking again as they haven't posted any new rumor stories since December 30th. So we'll head on over to Nikon Rumors. The first Sigma mirrorless lens for Nikon Z-mount could be announced next week. The first Sigma press event for 2023 is scheduled for next week, January 12th, and we may finally get an official word on the long-rumored Sigma mirrorless lenses for the Nikon Z-mount that are expected to be introduced this year. But we'll have to wait and see exactly what Sigma has for us on the 12th. Small rig camera accessory with a hidden Apple AirTag cavity. Small Rig now offers camera accessories with a hidden Apple AirTag cavity. The Small Rig cage for Apple AirTag universal compatibility and the Small Rig quick release plate for Apple AirTag compatible with Nikon. Both products are also available at B&H Photos. Small Rig offers international shipping and this comes via Photo Rumors. Definitely awesome because I have started buying a lot of air tags and tagging a lot of things with them just to keep track of them. And I would love to have these if the universal compatibility small rig cage for Apple AirTag is available for my cameras. And if it's Arca Swiss, that would be fantastic because then I could use it with my Platyball tripod heads that I recently bought. Next over to Fuji Rumors, tracking birds with Fujifilm X-H2S versus Sony stack cameras, best test I have seen so far. And there is an accompanying YouTube video with this. The German YouTube channel Amazing Nature Alpha, who shoots a lot with Sony cameras, tested the Fujifilm X-H2S autofocus with the XF 200mm F2 and the XF 150-600 F5.6-8. Now, there are lots of autofocus tests for wildlife out there, but what sets this one apart from all the others? Well, I'll tell you below. Before we dive into it, here are a few considerations he makes. Note it's in German, so you get Patrick translated below. 
general considerations, ISO performance is fantastic for an APS-C camera. The XF 200mm F2 is crazy sharp already at F2. Now, for the autofocus surprise, he was able to track all kinds of insects with the XH2S, even though they are not on the official list of supported animals. No, we already reported here how by setting the camera to bird autofocus, other people were able to track frogs, dragonflies, and more. Japanese Fujifilm managers commented here that this is a happy accident or coincidence. It worked astonishingly well also on beetles, butterflies, and more. Birds on trees on Sony level. He tested it all at F2 with the 200 millimeters, so he had extremely shallow depth of field. In backlit situations, just as the other brands, also Fujifilm can sometimes struggle to perfectly nail the focus on birds, but most are in focus. Often, even when the bird turned his head, the camera nailed the focus on what it was still recognizing of the eye. Depth of field was extremely shallow due to the F2 at 200 millimeters. For birds sitting, standing on trees, and just moving their heads around, the Fujifilm X-H2S is at Sony level, even stacked camera Sony level. And this what sets this test apart from all the others. The guy at Amazing Nature Alpha created a dedicated flying bird test track. This allows him to create tough bird flying fast forwards uh, fast towards camera, but controlled conditions. So no matter which camera he tests, they all have to deal with the same conditions, giving us a reliable and comparable test results as possible. Is it perfectly perfect? Certainly not. But it's the closest thing I've seen in trying to create comparable test conditions for bird photography. And what are his findings? He used the X-H2S or the XF150-600 to 600 for this test. He shot at 40 frames per second. These are the results he got with other cameras. The Sony A9, 20 frames per second, was 17 out of 18 in sharp images. Sony A1, 30 frames per second, with 27 sharp images. The Sony A7 IV and other mid-range full-frame cameras, 4 out of 5 images out of 10 are sharp. Can the Fujifilm X-H2S beat the mid-range full-frame and even catch up with the $5,000 high-end full-frame cameras? He made a few runs and got these results with the X-H2S. 30 sharp images out of 49, 33 sharp images out of 47. Even the images that are very slightly out of focus, he counted them as missed focus. With the slightly out of focus, he would have gotten 38 out of 47 usable images. Now, I can understand why people shoot the X-H2S at 40 frames per second. But I think in order to get even more comparable results, the X-H2S should have been shot at 30 frames per second to compare it to the 30 frames per second of the Sony A1 and 20 frames per second to compare it to the 20 frames per second of the A9. This way, we can see how well the AF works when the camera is given the same time between shots to make its calculations. My guess is this would have given an even higher hit rate for the X-H2S. And yet, it's a 40 megapixel or 40 frames per second camera, so it's legit to test it at 40 frames per second. Conclusion, the X-H2S is definitely a high-performance camera and is more in line with the performance of Sony A9 and A1. But while it is close, the X-H2S is just a little bit less good than the stacked Sony cameras. But very high performance for such a low price when compared to its stacked competitors. If you're looking for the best autofocus performance in the X-H2S price segment, then the X-H2S is the best camera. My conclusion, I think we often forget this, it's only a bit more than half a year now that Fujifilm is offering animal subject detection autofocus system.
So this is Fujifilm's first implementation. And personally, I think Fujifilm should have given a little bit more time to fine tune it and bring it to Canon and Sony's level. I also think that just because the Fujifilm X-H2S is half the price of its stack competitors, Fujifilm should not think that they don't really need to match Sony and Canon AF. Fujifilm advertises the X-H2S as the flagship, so the X-H2S needs to perform like the best flagship cameras out there, even if those cameras cost twice as much. So while the test today shows that you get a stunning performer for a great price, I am personally not completely happy until it performs equal or even better than the best Sony camera out there. Firmware and Fujifilm keep working on the firmware in 2023. Definitely a fantastic story, and I had to share that with my listeners for this week. Fujinon XF 7mm f4, the XF 8mm f35, the XF 9mm f2.8, and the XF 10mm f2.8 patents found. Back at the X Summit in May, Fujifilm announced the Fujinon XF 8mm f35. Fuji rumors already compared the XF 8mm 3.5 in size to other Fujinon lenses, and an accompanying link, which you can find in this article in the show notes. It is no surprise that during the development for this lens, Fujifilm made several versions of it, and those versions are now appeared as patents. The XF 7mm f4, the XF 8mm f35, the 9mm 2.8, and the 10mm 2.8. Looks like Fujifilm went for the golden middle. Not the widest, nor the longest, not the slowest, nor the fastest, hence XF 8mm 3.5, a good decision if you ask me, but you are free to tell us your opinion in the comments. In recent years, image lenses with wide-angle miniaturization and good optical performance have been requested. This disclosure provides an imaging lens with a wide-angle, smaller size, and good optical performance and an imaging device with this imaging lens. Example 1, focal length 8.245, f-value 3.60, angle of view 123.6, with a back focus of 13.808 millimeters. Example 2, focal length 7.216, f-value of 4.12, angle of view of 130.6, and a back focus of 13.438. Example 3, focus Focal length 9.273, f value 2.88, angle of view 118.8, with a back focus of 16.171. And the final example is a focal length of 10.341, with an f value of 2.88, angle of view is 113.4, with a back focus of 16.911 millimeters. So, definitely some intriguing lenses there. We'll have to see if. Fuji only brings out the 8mm, or maybe they'll give us one more. Who knows? Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. And Sigma's 60 to 600mm FE lens retail price is 297,000 yen, or around $2,200 US. Next week, January 12th, Sigma will announce the new 600 to, or 60 to 600 millimeter FE lens. The retail price in Japan will be 297,000 yen. That's around $2,200, but real U.S. retail price should be lower. 
specs for the 60 to 600 f45 to 63 dgdn os sport lens construction 27 elements and 19 groups minimum focus distance of 45 to 260 centimeters maximum magnification 1 to 2 dot uh, 1 to 2 and 1 to 4 number of aperture blades 9 circular aperture new development adopted HLA, high response linear actuator, filter diameter of 105 millimeters, size is 119.4 millimeters by 279.2 millimeters or 281.2 for the E-mount version. Weight is 2495 grams. Uh, 2485 G for the E mount version. The hood is the LH1144 02 with a lens cap LC 740E, and the tripod socket is the TS121. Definitely an intriguing lens, and it would be cool to have that kind of focal range from 60 to 600 millimeters. Wow. I'm hoping to someday get the new Fujifilm 150 to 600 myself. And last for this week, summary of Sony, Sigma, and Tamron lenses coming soon. Here are some lenses we will get within the next weeks. The Sigma 60-600 f4.5-6.3 on January 12th. The Sony 20-70 f4G likely on January 17th. The Sony 16-35 f2.8 GM2 maybe in February. And camera beta reports that those might be the next four new Tamron FE lenses will be the Tamron 35mm f3.5 DI3 OSD pancake, the Tamron 45mm f1.4 DI3 USD, the Tamron 90mm f1.8 DI3 USD, and the Tamron 150-400 f2.8-5.6 DI3 VC VXD. And that is all the news and rumors for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 305 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing an Apple Podcast and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. My next video will be out this afternoon, and it is my unboxing review of the Hohem powered selfie stick slash gimbal 
for your smartphone. Quite a cool little gadget and not very expensive at $40. So definitely check out that video when it releases this afternoon. Also wanted to let my listeners know I'm still working on seeing if I can get um, Jordan Drake and Chris Nichols from DP Review TV onto the show as guests. Uh, as I said before, Jordan has said yes, and he's even been nice enough. He recently started following me on Twitter in return to my following him. So hopefully, I'll have an update for you on that very soon, keeping my fingers crossed. And of course, Skip Cohen will be rejoining us again very soon as well. All right, that's going to wrap up today's episode, and I'll see you all again on Thursday.